I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. Come along with us on a journey through the book of Judges. Here on the Bible Book Club. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Well, in chapters 8 through 10, Abimelech's ascent, the son who killed to be king, Gideon's son Abimelech cut a deal to be king with the people of Shechem. His first task was to assassinate his own 70 brothers minus one on a stone. The one who escapes Jotham appeared at Mount Gerzim and told a fable about Abimelech, the thornbush. God avenges the death of Gideon's sons by stirring up dissension between Abimelech and the people. Abimelech kills the people of Shechem and then is killed himself by a stone. Then we read two short descriptions of minor judges, Tola and Jer. If you are getting lost in the judges, just like I sometimes tend to, and you want some clarity or you want to just see the order, um, who they defeated, who they were, more about them, we have a chart of the 12 judges. It's all in the show notes. Go check it out because it really helps bring this all into focus. So we've discussed four of the six major judges, starting with Othniel. Remember him, the gold star standard judge. He's the one that did everything really well. Ehud, the left-handed or handicapped judge, Deborah, the only female judge, then there was a turn. So the first three were pretty good. The Israelite situation after that turn became noticeably darker and idolatrous. And each judge's leadership is noticeably flawed and often fatal. The days of Joshua and Othniel are over. Starting with the fourth judge, Gideon, the weak judge, and including the next two judges, Jephthah and Samson, the sin and the stakes for Israel grow in tandem. Scene one, God addresses Israel directly. Israel is in big trouble and God forgoes other means of communication. No prophet, no angel this time. Instead, God opts to personally confront the Israelites himself. Chapter 10 continued. Chapter 10, verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashereths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, and the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. What did the Israelites do? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So what was the evil they did? The list of their idolatry is extensive. The Israelites are accused of serving seven different types of gods. Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, 
the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Note that this list of seven gods is also a geographical list of how every nation around the Israelites had influenced them. Baal and Ashtoreth are Canaanites, so located within the promised land. Aram was to the northeast, Sidon to the northwest, Moab to the southeast, Ammonites to the east, Philistines to the southwest. Moses warned them years ago against being influenced by other nations surrounding them in Deuteronomy 13.6, which says, If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to them or listen to them. Well, they screwed (laughs) that one up, didn't they? They sure did. The number seven is not random. We know from discussions in other seasons of Bible Book Club. It is called the number of completion because God completed creation in seven days. So what is he saying here? God's reaction to the accumulation of seven different types of idolatry was complete. He was angry. He It says that he sells them into oppression under the Philistines and Ammonites. This means exactly what it implies. If you sold your house, the new owner could do anything he wants with it. The Israelites have been sold and the oppressors can do with them whatever they wish. God is not going to protect them anymore. He explains that for each of the seven types of gods they have worshipped, they have been oppressed by seven different nations. The Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites. And God flippantly suggests that if they do not like their current circumstances, they should go to those gods that they have chosen to serve for help. Paul speaks of a similar situation with similar results for us in Romans 1.21. Which says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts hearts. The words sinful desires comes from a Greek word epithumia, which means an overwhelming drive, an enslaving desire or lust. If we allow ourselves to persist in idolatry, God will give us over to the desire. Idolatry often leads to slavery. If we choose anything over God, love of self, money, popularity, position, it will become ruler over our lives and control us. And this is what is happening to the Israelites. They have given themselves over to many gods. And I think it's just important to point out here too, though, that if you are in a a cycle of sin, God is not going to forsake you. He's not going to go, well, just, you know, go worship that other God, whatever that is that you're putting above him. But he he will be there for you. He will help you. But he does ask that you um, turn from your ways and come back to him. Exactly. The Israelites protest the Lord's suggestion that they take their complaints to other gods. In fact, they beg. Verse 15, but the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. 
When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whomever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. The Israelites doth protest too much, methinks, (laughs) is the thought of some commentaries. But many others feel that this was a true repentance this time. Yeah, they took all the gods out. Because they confessed their sin, they submitted to whatever punishment God had for them, and they got rid of their foreign gods. I'm on that camp. However, their next move is a little suspect. They must have heard that the Ammonites had rallied troops and camped at Gilead. So the Israelite leaders have a meeting and decide how they will pick their new leader. There is no mention of consultation with God, no word from God, no angel appeared to pick a judge for them. In all other times of oppression, with every other judge, God chose the leader. Not this time. The people made the decision. Once again, we must wonder, were they really repentant for their sin? Or were they just sorry for the consequences of their sin? Or were they really repentant and just panicked when they learned of the advancing troops? There is more division amongst commentaries about the phrase, God could bear Israel's misery no longer. Because it sounds like he's being empathetic. Like, oh, they were crying out to him and he couldn't bear it anymore hearing them cry out to him. But the translation really reads, his soul was short because of Israel's efforts, which some commentaries take to mean that God was not feeling compassionate, but frustrated with the situation. We will never know the answer. Did they repent or didn't they? So where are we? We've discussed seven different judges. The Israelites have been accused of seven types of idolatry, and they have been oppressed by seven nations. God and the author of this book really want us to see Israel's complete spiritual decline with that number seven. Perhaps we will understand why it's going to get worse in scene two, judge number eight. This is the story of Jephthah, the outcast. Chapter 11. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. All right, here's the scoop on Jephthah. Unlike Gideon, who is a weak warrior, Jephthah is already a mighty warrior, but he is hardly qualified for the role of leader and judge. Jephthah, we will see, lacks knowledge about the Lord. And in the vacuum of understanding, he has allowed traditions of other gods to infiltrate his beliefs. Jephthah's education is lacking because he was cast out of his home and disowned by his family because his mother was a prostitute. It is thought that Jephthah had originally been adopted by his father. Otherwise, the issue of inheritance would not exist. But when his father died, his brothers went to the elders and had Jephthah disinherited and kicked out of the tribe. Like Abimelech, Jephthah has a dysfunctional family situation going on. Jephthah is living outside of Israel in Tob, north of the region controlled by Ammon. But born a natural leader, he has found his own tribe, a tribe of outlaws. He's a leader of organized crime, 
a pirate of sorts. Yet God, in God's eyes, we all have value. And despite the Israelites running ahead of God and trying to decide who will be leader all by themselves, God is still in control and he makes a most unusual choice again. He chooses Jephthah, the outcast, to save his people. Scene three, Jephthah negotiates with the elders. Verse four, sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be the head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. First, note that the elders initial thought in chapter 10, 18 was that whoever saved them would be the head or leader. But Jephthah gets an invitation to be commander. It's not the same thing. It's like comparing a general to the president. Commander is definitely a lesser offer. Jephthah may be uneducated in Israelite ways, but he is not stupid and he rejects them. He knows that as commander, he could be an outcast again once the Ammonites are defeated and he's no longer needed. The elders are forced to keep their vow that he can be head over the tribe of Gilead, which means he's back in the family and he even gets some promised land. Jephthah is already demonstrating his ability to lead as a shrewd negotiator, something he most certainly learned during his time as an outcast. Moses was also an outcast for a time too, and for both of them, it was a preparatory time of learning. Note for us too, frequently, adversity develops skills necessary for a job God has planned for our future. Scene four, Jephthah negotiates this time with the Ammonite king, wisely attempting to negotiate a peaceful resolution first. Verse 12, then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with a question, what do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Shihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through its territory. He mustered all his troops and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Shihon and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated him. 
Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabuk and from the desert to the Jordan. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people, Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord, our God, has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Erer, and the surrounding settlements and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. So it's crazy how spot on Jephthah was about his history of battles because he nailed it. However, he he's not quite as well versed in the Torah, we will find out, and he doesn't know about God's history. Jephthah uses three great arguments with the king about why he should not fight them. First, the land never belonged to the Ammonites. It was originally the Amorites, but they attacked Israel and Israel won, so it became Israel's. Second, God gave them the land in victory. And wouldn't the Ammonites take land if their god, Chemosh, gave it to them? Now, this comment makes Jephthah look ignorant, for Chemosh is the god of the Moabites and Molech the god of the Ammonites. However, it is thought that Jephthah is cleverly pointing out the fact that Ammon had expanded into Moab's territory and now worshiped Chemosh too. We well, don't they know. do have a lot of gods in his defense. I know. It's hard to keep it's them It's hard to keep them straight. But again, we're seeing he has his History spot on. He was a military man. He liked it. He learned it. He was not a godly man and he mixes up his gods and their practices and it's going to come out. Third thing that he points out to um, the king of Ammon is Jephthah finishes with the fact that nobody has challenged their right to this land in 300 years. Therefore, it's theirs. But the king doesn't care. It doesn't matter what Jephthah says, but nice try. Jephthah made an eloquent argument with one overarching fault. In his argument, one gets the feeling that Jephthah really believed that the Ammonite and Moabite gods were a real thing. He says like, you know, if your God gave it to you, you would keep it. But, and while he treats them as unequal to his God, he nonetheless treats them as real. This blurry line will trip him up very soon. Scene five, the triumphant victory and the tragic vow. Verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Arir to, to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Abel Kadim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. This scene is odd. Okay, first, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Did he feel it? Remember, the Spirit coming upon him doesn't mean he was any more godly. It meant that God was going to be involved in the battle. Then he advanced on the Ammonites. Did he panic? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe he didn't feel the spirit. And when faced with the enemy, he freaked out because what he did next does not make sense. All of a sudden, Jephthah felt the need to make a vow. He's, he's, the spirits come upon him. He faces the Ammonites and it's like, all of a sudden you have this random like vow, like he had to make a deal with God to win. Like, okay, God, if you give me the win, I will give you this. Like God could be brought, bought or bribed or negotiated with. Uh, how about the first thing that comes through my door, God? Will that work? Like, what yeah, did he think that was going to be? One of his animals? I it's don't know. Be- it was such an impulsive, not well thought out vow for a guy who's usually such a great negotiator. But I think he did panic because you can negotiate with the elders like he had done and you can negotiate with the Ammonites, but you cannot negotiate with God, which makes me think he probably didn't feel the spirit or he would have been more confident. I don't know. But about this vow that he makes, God was silent. He never says a word about it. Scene six, the sacrifice that never should have happened. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of his timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down and I am devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. First and foremost, Jephthah never should have made a vow. It was rash and it was manipulative. You cannot negotiate for God's favor. This is one example of Jephthah likened God to other false gods who had to be paid for favors. Remember, they had to offer sacrifices for the gods to get anything out of them. Second, did he really sacrifice her as a burned offering? This is a big question in the commentaries. Most of them believe, yes, he did. And here are some of the theories about what he was thinking at the time that leads them to believe he had offered a sacrifice. First, he was probably intending to offer an animal, thinking that it was the godly thing to do. And offering a burnt sacrifice in thanks to God would have been acceptable. Gideon did it, remember, just a few chapters ago. But Jephthah made the sacrifice, and if you give me victory, I will make an offering. It wasn't in thanks. It was a controlling negotiation like you would with a foreign god. Second, he probably assumed that an animal would be what came out of his door. In those days, the typical four-room house had one room for the animals, and he used the masculine gender for the word whatever comes out of the door, implying that he thought it would be an animal and not his wife or child. Then the fact that he was shocked when his daughter came out also implied he was clearly not expecting it to be her. The irony was that Jephthah didn't think. He wasn't thinking when he made the vow, and he wasn't thinking when he kept the vow. If he was thinking, he would have realized that God would not have him deliver the Israelites from the Ammonites who practiced child sacrifice to turn around and commit the same sin by sacrificing his own child. If he was thinking, and perhaps had not been such a social outcast, he would have sought the counsel of a priest and learned what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 12.31. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. If he'd known the Torah as well as he knew history, he he would have known not to do this. And he would have learned in Leviticus 27 that what was vowed to the Lord could be redeemed. A female person 
could be redeemed for 30 shekels of silver, which he easily could have had as the new leader and commander of Israel. But no one told him, either because they didn't know themselves or because he didn't ask. Sadly, Jephthah suffered from a dysfunctional upbringing and could have, should have been surrounded by people he trusted to guide him and teach him God's ways. Without knowledge, Jephthah was influenced by culture that mixed religions to suit their situation, which is a note for us. When we are unsure about what is right, do we seek the counsel of others who are wise? If we learn we have done something wrong, do we go to God for grace or justify our own way out? Do we know God well enough to know what is good in the eyes of the Lord? Or are we constantly tripping over the culture and falling for evil? How would our story begin? Hopefully not like the Israelites with, and the Christians did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, next we have Jephthah's daughter's response, which makes his vow even more heartbreaking. Verse 36, my father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said, give me two months to roam the hills and we with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. She was only a child, but her obedience to her father was thoughtfully mature. She asked for a time to grieve what she would miss most, to be a mother. For in those days, it was a great tragedy for a female to die childless. The story does not detail how and if she was sacrificed. In the best case scenario, she was dedicated to serve somewhere for her life and to never marry. In the worst case, she was killed and burned as a sacrifice that God would never accept. The story of Jephthah's triumph against the Ammonites is tragically overshadowed by the sacrifice of his only child. Scene 7 is another story of Ephraim's envy. Chapter 12. The Ephraimite forces were called out and they crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Well, we've heard this before. The last time the Ephraimites were angry for being left out was when Gideon defeated the Midianites. That was in chapter eight. And they challenged Gideon, but not viciously. Gideon was able to diplomatically calm them down. But this time, wow, they threatened Jephthah that they were going to burn down his house. A strategically harsh threat because Jephthah, we think, had just sacrificed his one and only child as a burnt offering. The Ephraimites clearly forgot who they were speaking to. This is not Gideon, the weak warrior. This is Jephthah, the outcast, a great warrior who was thrown out of his house by his Israelite family and then invited back in to lead by his Israelite clan and is now being threatened to be thrown out by an entire Israelite tribe after he had just saved the Israelite nation from the Ammonites. 
Can we blame him for being a little triggered? Verse two, Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life into my own hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me victory over them. Now, why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied, no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. Did Jephthah give Ephraim a chance to back down? He asked a lot of questions, but it doesn't appear that he did. Probably because the Ephraimites called the Gileadites renegades another insult to Jephthah. Jephthah was an outcast rejected by his family. A renegade is a deserter. Jephthah had never deserted Israel. They had deserted him. That must have hurt painfully. So war broke out. The Gileadites won the battle and then took their vengeance further by making sure not one single renegade Ephraimite could get away by giving them a funny word test if they tried to cross the river. The sad summary is that Jephthah delivered the Israelites from the oppression of the Ammonites by destroying them, but then turned on the Israelites with equal devastation. And while Jephthah was a great warrior, The sin that surrounded and infiltrated his life cast a very dark shadow on his legacy as a judge and on the future of Israel. You know, I kind of feel bad for Jephthah because I know each judge is kind of getting darker and, and clearly he does not know the one true God. I mean, he's just got it all mixed up. But it's kind of like the story of Wicked, the Broadway Wicked, you know, um, was he born this way or was it his circumstances? Because he was kind of outcast from everything he knew where he probably would have learned about God and then kind of has to bring himself up and build this band, an army around him. And then he's very much an army guy. He knows the history of the wars. He just doesn't know why they're fighting him. Next week, we're going to study the most known judge of all the judges, the mighty Samson. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.